0: The Octarine Tree, a podcast exploring the meaning of ecology, spirit, and human relationship. From South Western Australia, I'm your host, Byron Joel. G'day, welcome back to The Octarine Tree podcast. Today we are graced with Josh Shry. Josh is a writer, a teacher, a lifelong student of world mythologies and cosmologies. He has a very high quality podcast called The Emerald, currents and trends through a mythic lens, offering perspectives on everything from current global events to cultural movements in art, science, music, literature, yoga practice and politics, all through the framework of myth, story and imagination. I really enjoyed this discussion with Josh. We're going to cut straight to it, the beginning of which you will hear I was having some technical difficulties. I couldn't hear anything Josh was saying until I received an electric shock from my microphone and then everything started working again. So anyway, we're going to get straight into it. Josh Shry. Ah, I just got a zap through my microphone and I can hear you. Really? Yeah, I got a, a
1: mild electric shock through my microphone right now. In here. <laughs> okay. Weird. That's weird. Okay. Mate. Um, it's the way all good interviews should begin, I guess.
0: Josh Fry, welcome to the Octarine Tree Podcast. Thank you for taking the time.
1: How are you? Good. How are you doing? I'm well, mate. Thank you. Um, where are you joining us from today? I'm in the US in the southwestern United States, Santa Fe, New Mexico. Right, New Mexico. Yeah. Okay, cool. How are you handling all the
0: apparent crazy over there at the moment? I mean, the, there are many focal points for chaos at the moment in the world, and the U.S. seems to be one of them from
1: afar. Anyway, how's uh, life on the ground? <laughs> well, where, where I am, it's actually fairly mellow. Um, I live in a kind of a, a bubble. There's It's a town of about 100,000, and um, it's... You know, it's it's a little bit removed from some of the the issues that you see on the news, uh, very close to the mountains. And um, so, yeah, I have a, a little bit of a, I guess, a comfortable wall between myself and the chaos. But there's certain there's certainly, a, you know, a lot going on these days and incredibly polarized political system. And um, the pandemic just blew that into a whole new dimension. Um, So yeah, it's an interesting time to be alive, as the old Chinese curse says, right? (laughs) That comes to mind fairly often,
0: actually, with a kind of wry chuckle. I do wonder if that was actually a curse historically, or if it's just kind of an urban myth or spin put on it, but it's apt. You, of course, are the curator of the Emerald podcast. Mm. What actually motivated you to start The Emerald? Was it a, a long process of kind of ruminating on the idea or one kind of flash of aha moment? Well, it's
1: something I've been ruminating on for, for a little while. And really, you know, I, I was raised steeped in mythic tradition, and it's something that I've studied for the entirety of my life. And I knew that I wanted to start to bring some content that would explore the role of the mythic in the everyday and explore really this essential aspect of human existence, this connection to animacy, this connection to deep imagination, this connection to a living, vibrant vision of life and why we're here on this planet. And, you know, I had I, done my share of writing, um, But there's something that I learned and discovered through all of this study of mythic tradition and the study in the yogic tradition, which obviously has a lot of chanting and singing, which is that so many of these stories and myths and so much of this um, exploration of the mythic has been done historically through sound and been done through spoken word, um, incanted word and sung story. And I realized that I wanted to bring something, you know, I have some what of a background in music. Also, I realized that I wanted to bring something that was not just words on a page or words on a screen. Um, and I find that a lot of our discourse these days is so dominated by words on a screen. And that has um, consequences. There are consequences to that. Right. And so I, I realized that what I wanted to bring um, was in the podcast format where I could speak and, sing and mix in clips of music and song and really seek to take the listener on a journey um, more than just kind of a mental cerebral exercise of reading digital words. Yeah, I think you succeed.
0: The production is quite rich and evocative. Mm. I definitely feel like you succeed in that intention. I've listened to not all of, but a a fair few of your podcasts. And one of my favorites, no, it's my favorite of yours, is the Animism is Normative Consciousness episode. I remember when I was listening to it, I was having this just amazing, like, yes, response. Like it really, it wasn't just a, oh, that's interesting. Or yes, I agree. It was this kind of like celebratory eruption from out of me. It really felt almost like The way you repeat that, animism is normative consciousness. You just keep coming back to that to kind of repeat and nail it home. You mentioned just before that you were raised in an environment with awareness of myth. I'm interested on your relationship to animism over your life. Many people as children claim to have been native to something of an animist perspective. Many people think, you know, the childlike mind is inherently animist. I'm curious, did you ever lose it like many people did? Many people in our culture, upon maturation, quote unquote, and reaching adulthood, the uh, mythopoetic or animist headspace, magical mind, some people might call it, dissolves or calcifies into our more mundane materialist Headspace. Did you go through that process or was it because of the environment you were raised in? Did you kind of maintain it
1: all the way through? Yeah. Um, you know, I think there was a certain time in my life where I lost a little bit of connection for how to get there. Um, but really it was something that was supported and and nurtured throughout my upbringing. And I think that makes a huge difference. Like you're saying, I mean, I, I was raised in a Zen Buddhist environment, And the stories that I grew up with as a child were stories of, of, you know, talking animals and nature spirits and this type of thing. And it wasn't really presented to me like these are, um, myths in the unreal sense of the word, right? We have that dual meaning of the word myth in our culture, right? It was presented to me as like, as like, this is the way it is. And, um, you know, from there I encountered Tibet Buddhism, which is simply teeming with spirits. And I studied Chinese martial arts systems and very much steeped in, in animism as well. I studied in the Lakota Native American tradition, which is obviously animistic. And so it, it formed really a, a, the backbone of my experience growing up, you know? Um And I think that when you do that. I mean, I think that part of the issue that happens with with childhood, and it's a very interesting question that you're bringing up, is that kids are tapped in to, you know, before we have before we have mental abstraction, we have this kind of somatic experience as children of just proprioceptive feeling and what a child, what a children do before they have words. You know, when you see I have a toddler right now and you see him looking out on the world and he's simply absorbing, he's just absorbing so much. And there's so much information that's going in there. I can see just not in the form of words. Right. Mm. And so we are beings of feeling and, before the written word, you know, before we could abstract meaning onto, into a set of symbols, we perceive things directly. Our, our, um, you know, our experience with the natural world was something that we perceived directly. The oral stories that we listened to were felt and experienced. They literally vibrated our bodies right through the, through the sound through which they're delivered. So, our, what you could say, natural experience of the world as human beings is kinesthetic, is somatic. And I think what happens with um, children in our culture, particularly, and when I say our culture, I mean, kind of modern um, technologically based culture, what happens is we have this kind of wide open perception of the world, and then it it gets very much categorized and certain things are validated other things are invalidated and it's very interesting because we we raise kids Really steeped in animism. I mean, I mean, cartoons like children's cartoons are animistic. Totally. There's talking animals and cartoons all the time. Totally, yeah. You know, we're totally steeped in this realm of talking animals and all this stuff. And then all of a sudden, it's like, oh yeah, but that's not real. And here's let me introduce you to the the real world, right? Mm, yeah. You can look around the world and you can see historic cultural practices and current cultural practices in in which some of this imaginative vision is much more fostered, right? Mm-hmm. In which a child's in which a child's vision or dreams um, are given a lot more worth or credit. I'm I'm listening actually to a wonderful book series called the Botica series, which is about oh, yeah. Dreaming the Eagle. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the ancient Celtic culture. Mm-hmm. And it's really interesting in that in that book series to listen to how they take the the child's dream so seriously right and how they foster and encourage that dreaming and what it's like when a culture centers imaginative vision instead of kind of putting it to the side and saying oh this is frivolous fancy and that's all nice and everything but it doesn't really matter right Mm. um so i think that you know I think that really it's it's this natural human way of perceiving and seeing and interacting with the world. You know, the written word changed a lot. The set of symbols changed a lot. Indeed, there's a lot there, and I think we're in an age of revision and symbol
0: changing at the moment, which I will hope to get to later. Mm. But, yeah, it begs the question, you know, I mean, even I before framed it as the childlike mind being imaginal and mythopoetic and magical in inclination, but I mean, like your that episode, animism is normative consciousness posits. Is it that the childlike mind is mythopoetic, and then we mature into whatever it is we mature into, or is it actually, like you state, that that animist perspective is normative, and that what we call adulthood in our current cultural form is actually more of a, uh, an atrophying of particular faculties that were never meant to be disposed of in the
1: first place. Yeah. Well, in that episode, I, I quote a wonderful thinker called, um, F E Krantz, and he basically said, and it's where I uh, got the word normative for the, for the title, which is, you know, obviously can be a controversial word in certain contexts. Um, yeah. but he basically said, you know, there's nothing normative about the way that we're viewing the world now, which is from a detached, objective place, and the world is basically dead matter to be, like, objectively kind of, you know, viewed from the outside. And his basic thesis is that we had lost a, a way of seeing and knowing, yeah, Um, which was very, very different, and that there were kind of points along the way within human civilization where we'd lost this. but, But really, you know and I and I mentioned this in the episode as well you have to you have to start to understand the human being in terms of time and you have to understand you know what are they saying now that modern anatomically modern human beings have been around for 300,000 years mm-hmm. and what we call what we call civilization what we call modern civilization is literally two to three percent of human history Mm -hmm. and when you look at the traditional cultures around the world and you look at the undergatherer cultures around the world what you see is animism is it's the substratum it's the basic foundation of how you know and and animist cultures generally don't have a word for animism. And I talk about Mm. this quite a bit in the episode, right? It's so inherent, so natural to the way human beings see things that it's only after we've become removed from it, that we come up with a word for it. (laughs) Right. And that, that I find very telling because it speaks to the fact that, oh, for hundreds of thousands of years, we saw and interacted with and felt the world in this particular way. And it's only through a series of detachments, one could say. And there's the detachment of writing, um, which does play a big part in it. David Abram talks a lot about that. There's the detachment of agricultural civilization where you have social stratification and you have people who are literally removed from nature, right? It's only through these series of detachments, obviously, the Industrial Revolution is a huge one, um, and religious philosophies that kind of um, encouraged a way of looking at nature in which we were somehow removed from nature, right? Nature is this thing over there. Yeah, it's only through this series of detachments that we start to um, arrive at what you could call the the modern perspective, right? Yeah, and the scientific revolution, you know, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the scientific scientific revolution is really just the the latest in a long series of um, progressive detachments. Mm. Um, yeah, so I, you know, the basic thesis is that it is absolutely inherent. It's, it's how our ancestors, all of our ancestors, perceived and interacted with the world. Yeah. Now, does that mean it's, um, now does that mean it's like somehow right and science is wrong? No, not at all. This isn't what I seek to say on the podcast whatsoever. Wade Davis, the anthropologist, says it really well when he says, look, you have to understand that there is, whether or not you believe in nature spirits or this type of thing, there's a fundamental difference in a people that grow up seeing the mountain as a living entity that upon which they depend with which they are in a reciprocal relationship there's a fundamental difference between that and seeing the mountain as a copper mine that is there to be like extracted and Mm. it's basically dead and it's there for our use Mm. and the question is really you know again not like who's right right the question is, what do we lose? What do we lose when we deanimate the world? Exactly. What do we lose when we, when we objectify the world, right? Yeah. And that's yeah. the territory I'm interested in exploring. Yeah. And in exploring that, I really wanted to get to, like, animism isn't a concept, <laughs> you know? Animism, the, the animate world that we interact with, it's not like an idea, like a philosophy, like other isms. It's the substrate and finding our way back there as much as we can is absolutely vital for the world that we're living in now. Yes, I was nodding, nodding
0: profusely as you were speaking then. Um, I think it's really telling the very creation of the word. animism is telling in and of itself uh, to describe the water that the fish is swimming in and was previously unaware of. I'm interested in the uh, meaning of history and the purpose of history and the purpose of the human detachment from sense of connection to other or to the expanded self. It's hard to even English this without being guilty, like semantically guilty of the very same detached (laughs) mistake of detachment, you know, detachment from the environment or ecology or other. You know, all of these things even semantically position that detachment in the first place. But what is the meaning of this detachment? What's the medicine in there? What is the lesson? If and when we finally do come through this chaotic node of history, which is fairly uncomfortable for many in many ways, in some ways very physically comfortable, but on a kind of existential level, it's wrought, when we do come out of this and we move not backwards into anything, not necessarily a return, um, and it's not all about progress, but moving into another state of conscious reconnection. What do you think we will have
1: that we didn't have before that fall, if you will? Yeah, I mean, and I might take a little circular journey to to get there. I mean, the, the human being is, is a creature of journeying, right? Mm-hmm. We um, are biological creatures and somatic creatures and creatures of perception. And there's a fundamental experience that the human being longs to have. And that experience is one of seamless connection or one of flow, as it's called a lot. Or trance, it's called quite often, or in the yogic tradition, samadhi. Right, it's a feeling of being connected, feeling you know like we've gotten past the chatter of our thinking minds, and we've gotten into like a deeper zone. Mm-hmm. But in order to get there, we have to we have to go on a journey, right? So you can see the um, outer manifestation of what we've done is like a, a it's it's an outer reflection of an internal journey. So everything you see that's going on in the world right now is a manifestation of inner addiction, mm-hmm. right? It's a manifestation of inner inner restless chatter. You know, it's a manifestation of of worldviews in which we um we think that the the way to happiness is the relentless accumulation of things and we're here to satisfy all of our impulses and we're here to, you know, chew up the world and and yeah. and so okay. there's an inner an inner restlessness that results in an outer situation. Right. Mm -hmm. So the journey, you know, the journey, um, I I feel ultimately like there are a lot of things that we need to clean up in the outer world. Right. But ultimately to get there, I think that we have to be able to, um, understand this, the fundamental basics of the inner journey as well. And what that means, and that doesn't mean like forget about what's going on in the external world and, and focus only inside, not at all. But what it means is that um what we're striving for, what we're looking for, what we're scratching away for, we're not gonna find it, you know, <laughs> we're not gonna find it through an external journey. Mm. Like there's no place that we're going to get to where we're where we're suddenly like, oh, I have, you know, enough or <laughs> one golden toilet is enough, or like mm. right. That And that obsession kind of keeps on, keeps on going. And so when we, when we start to realize that, you know, this is, this, um, this restlessness is really a deep longing for a fundamental experience, an experience that's so innate to being human, right? This experience of like feeling one with nature or feeling connected Mm -hmm. or feeling whole, then we can start to explore societally ritually like what are the way what are the ways back there how do we make this journey in a way you know that doesn't cause us to have to like colonize mars and go billions of miles away from this planet which supports us and right. feeds us like how how can we find you know how can we satisfy this need to journey how can we satisfy it right here at home hmm. And the way that human beings have historically done this is through ritual. This is what ritual is for, you know, ritual exists to, and certainly there are a lot of empty rituals these days, right? Mm. But originally and traditionally, and you see it still alive in many of the indigenous cultures in the world, traditionally ritual exists to take, to satisfy this need for the journey and to take us to this place where we feel home. And often these rituals are very intense and they involve like going into these deep states and these flow states. And when we find this type of connection to these deep states, hopefully we find that we don't have as much restlessness in our day-to-day lives that then translates into creating a world of agitation and anxiety and traffic and strip mining and all this type of stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I think that, you know, I hope that we learn you know, these types of lessons and that we find our way, um, forward, right. To, (laughs) to this place of ritual again. Right. I I hope that we do that. I don't, you know, I'm a little wary of, of kind of terminology or language of saying like, you know, when we get there and as a whole, because does humanity tend to do things as a whole collective? I don't know. Um, you know, but I do think that we are entering a phase where, the environmental repercussions of our actions are going to start forcing some of these questions to the surface. Yeah. And I think they already are. I think you're seeing a lot of people who are starting to say, oh, right. Like it's not all about this external restlessness. Mm-hmm. And am I ever really going to be satisfied through no, actually, we have to pay attention to where we are and we have to find these rituals within our communities that satisfy, you know, these longings that we have in a way that are healthy and help to build wholeness within our communities, right? And Mm -hmm. help to take care of the planet. Um, so I think that, you know, I think that we're on a long, I think Western civilization has been on this long spiraling external journey to ultimately find that we have to, um, you know, embody, this place where the internal and the external meet, right. We have to embody, we have to embody something that's far more inward. It's basically like, Oh, the journey that I've been longing for is very simple. The journey that I've been longing for is to feel one with nature. Mm. The journey that I've been longing for is to have a regular ritual, repetitive outlet for this, um, longing that I feel. Right. Yeah. So I think, you know, um, I guess I'd say I'm, I'm wary about saying like, we will learn this lesson or that lesson. Mm -hmm. And I see it much more. I see it much more in like the times we're in are going to demand a lot of us. And I think some are going to go in the direction of, um, finding this type of ritual repetitive activity again. And I think some are going to go in the direction of like really, you know, Oh, I have to stop what I'm doing. And, really figure out what it means to care for the planet and i think the human capacity for denial is also <laughs> incredibly real and incredibly deep seated and i think some will continue down that road mm. holding on as long as they can to you know the illusion that we can just keep treating the planet the way the way we've been treating it and everything's going to be fine so i think you're going to see a lot of these things mixed together yeah, I
0: agree. I mean, like all places and times throughout human history, as far as I can tell, it's a mosaic of all sorts of things, of course. Mm. There'll be a great many people and aspects of humanity that'll be dragged kicking and screaming along the way. But I do wonder about this, like the sense of longing that we seem to have, particularly the industrialised, contemporary and industrialised cultures this kind of emptiness and longing on the internal side of things, the interiority of it, of us. And then on the outside, the the obvious kind of insanity of our collective actions, destruction, uh, ecological destruction, this kind of anthropocentrism, this denial of interiority of any other being or element, which kind of helps us justify our objectifying of the world and our using it as seeing it as purely resource so there's this interiority of longing and emptiness and this kind of scrambling to fill that hole and then there's the exteriority that manifests as ecological destruction to da 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 i do wonder like in a kind of chicken versus the egg kind of way the circular chicken or egg question are they the same thing and which or which came first this perceivable sense of emptiness and longing what's that caused by? Or is it caused by, you know, a disenchantment? I'm not articulating myself well. Is it caused by the... No, I know. I know exactly what you're saying. The West's historical abandonment of the metaphysical worldview, you know, the death of Nietzsche's God, or is it that we are actually mourning and grieving
1: for that? I find it hard to differentiate those in my head. But what I've seen and and the myths of the world point to this as well is that there, there is a, a fundamental human restlessness, right? And if you want to look at the neuroscience of it, it has a lot to do with our frontal cortex. And, um, you know, this is why when we reach these kind of, um, states of flow or, or, or states of deep connection, you see the, the activity in the frontal cortex either, you know, slows down, um, quite a bit or it organizes in a much more coherent way, right? So I think within the biology of the human being, is this kind of restlessness. And, you know, there's so many myths, whether it's like from the Greek myths, there's a relentless fly buzzing in the head of Io, right? The fly just following around the world and she's running, running, trying to get away from the fly. Mm -hmm. Or there's Prometheus, the the forward thinker, always thinking forward. He wants to give fire to human beings so they can Mm -hmm. move forward, 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 forward. And he ends up unleashing Pandora's box, right? Mm -hmm. And so like in, in these stories, you, you hear right from the start and, you know, Tyson Yonkaporta uh, there in Australia, he he talks about this quite a bit. Like he talks about emu whispering into the ear, like, oh, you're better than other people. Right. And, Mm. and, and how in, in that culture, which is, you know, old, 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 the Aboriginal Mm -hmm. cultures that he's speaking of, they already recognize this human tendency to kind of want to like go outside of the bounds of nature, put oneself above another or, or, this type of thing. So I think it's, you know, sometimes it's, it's treated very simply. It's like, Oh, Descartes said, you know, um, I think therefore I am and created the mind body split. And that was really the start of it. I think it's far more complex and intricate than that. I think it starts with something that is in the biology of human beings. Right. And I think that the, the, the smart cultures recognize this in the biology of human beings and they, in the central makeup of human beings, then had, they then designed remedial technologies,
0: strategies, rituals to deal with that as a kind of psychic hygiene day to day, week to week
1: kind of thing. Exactly. And that regular ritual practice provided an outlet for it. And it was also held within the boundaries of community, right? So if someone's going a little off, like, (laughs) you know, there's a, there's a communal structure of wisdom to kind of keep them in check. Um, If somebody goes, has a grand vision, it's not just them alone on the internet, it's them within a community and they can test their vision with the elders who understand like, oh, this is just like a young guy being, (laughs) being a little bit of a daydreamer, or there's some actual validity to this. Right. And then it's also within story and it's reinforced within story and it's reinforced within land and all of these things seamlessly weave together. Right. So that, um, so that like you're saying, there's a remedial process for this agitation that we feel. Now, you can look at the history of, of um, civilization, kind of like I was saying earlier, and you can see various points along the way where this just got exacerbated, right? Where we basically chose the path of disconnection over and over and over again. And to the people who were in the midst of it, it probably didn't like feel like choosing anything because it probably happened over hundreds of years, you know? Mm-hmm. But again, agriculture, I mean, you know, Yuval Harari calls agriculture humanity's biggest mistake. Yeah and it's a joke and obviously you know i ben- i benefit from agriculture every day but the profound difference in in human life that came from you know hundreds of thousands of years of hunter gatherer existence and all of a sudden we have social stratification and we're putting things away for the winter and that creates this kind of um you know it- Creates this disconnect, it creates this forward thinking that is much more about um stockpiling stockpiling and um objectification and then defending. Yeah, and then defending, and other people have stuff and their stuff is better than our stuff, and war definitely arises with the rise of agriculture. It comes, I mean, I've talked about this on the podcast, and I think I even mentioned it in the episode that you're referring to, but but the Greeks observed this loss of animacy as it was happening in their culture. You know, there's there, there's stories within the Greek lexicon about, oh, you know, the the gods used to be alive and now they're carved in stone. And, yeah, that's very interesting. Um, Plato telling Pha- Phaedrus, like, what do I have to learn from a tree? And then Phaedrus reminds Plato, like, the tree is where the first prophecy came from. And it's a little kind of banter between the urban philosopher and someone who's reminding him that, oh, actually, wisdom does come from nature you know because the greek tradition long before what we consider to be kind of the founding of western civilization through you know abstract philosophies and and geometry and and this type of thing the greek the greek civilization for thousands and thousands and thousands of years is deeply deeply animistic and deeply connected to to this yeah and as societies as societies grew they simply grew away from it right and Mm. so growth population growth scale scale, the existence of a leisure class that can sit around and think about abstraction as opposed to actually, um, you know, you know, existing in the forest and existing in the fields, all of these things have contributed. And, you know, it's like, if you think about like that one habit we have that just keeps kind of <laughs> like we as individuals that just keeps kind of growing over time and it keeps kind of like a little snowball effect Yeah, it's the same thing with the story of humanity, right? habits are difficult to break. And when, you know, you know, when we're biologically wired towards immediate rewards, you know, the, the most addictive, most restless tendencies tended to win. Right. And and so I think that's what you've seen. You've seen that spider webbing out of um, basically, you know, our, our addictive tendencies magnified on a global scale. I don't
0: know if it's consolation but there's something to me slightly relieving about the idea that this is something of a um, repeating oscillation pattern in and out that an axis of animism versus some form of I I wouldn't even know what to stick on either end of these poles but a uh, a removal from immediate experience and concordance and tangible relationship with the world versus neurotic abstraction or whatever it is. It's something kind of relieving about that idea that it is not just some grand irreversible fuck up on behalf of our particular cultural form and in time and space but it is actually a tendency potentially even an inevitable one and maybe even a uh, necessary and ultimately
1: beneficial one if one zooms out far enough who knows yeah I mean you know one has to zoom out pretty far (laughs) but I think that that's also valuable right but yeah I mean it's been in the cultural growth of humanity and in the large agricultural societies, Western and non-Western. I mean, you know, you see it like in the, in the rise of ancient China, you see it in the rise of the ancient Mongols. I mean, you know, this tendency as societies get larger to kind of disconnect and grow more violent and disconnect and grow more violent. Um, obviously the current incarnation of it, um, you know, in the last 500 years or so has been the dominance of technological and industrial, um, Western colonialism. Um, but it's not limited to that. It's, um, it's something that has been with human beings for a very long time in very many cultures in very different ways. And so I think, you know, what you're saying, I think the, the, like the reassuring aspect of that is that, you know, we, we have followed something that's kind of wired within us as a species, but also wired within us as a species is this ability to journey home, is this ability through ritual to find reconnection, is this ability to um, find a state of harmonious reciprocity with nature right? These things are just as wired within us. And it all depends on which part of the wiring we're emphasizing. Mm-hmm. So I think that that, that to me really points the way to, um, how we can start to work with this and deal with it. Right. Yeah. And it has to be dealt with, you know, obviously it has to be dealt with on the level of legislation. It has to be dealt with on the level of science. It has to be dealt with in all these different ways, but we have to, we have to remember that we're like, we talked, we started with, you know, in this episode, we have to remember that we're inherently cre- Of feeling and proprioception and somatic experience, right? So it has to be dealt with on a feeling level. Mm. Like, what is ultimately going to cause somebody to care about climate change is that they feel it. Mm. What is ultimately going to cause somebody to care about the planet is that they feel it, you know? Mm. So you can't mandate wisdom. Right. You, we can't. It's not like
0: some leaders are going to come along and make it all better. So it's the very facing of the the gravity of what's occurring and actually feeling it and seeing it, which will be the trigger moment in an individual or a collective to actually birth a genuine motivation to remedy the situation and
1: reconnect. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, I think it's going to happen on multiple levels and I certainly don't want to dismiss the overall, you know, there's massive legislative efforts that are hugely important that friends of mine are working on. And, you know, what is it that's going... To get, um, you know, the CEO of PepsiCo or Coca-Cola who produces 100 billion plastic bottles a year, what is going to get them to realize that, you know, they have to stop looking at the abstract numbers on a spreadsheet on a screen in front of their faces and go out to the, you know, what do they call it, the Great Pacific Garbage Patch and actually see the impact and feel the impact uh that these substances are actually having in the world right mm. you know that's a kind of grand example but i think you know in addition like we can legislate as much as we want and we should and that that's a um a fix on one level but human beings have a tremendous tendency to repeat the same mistakes and the reason that we repeat the same mistakes is that we lose Um, connection to the actual feeling of what we've done, right? right? There's a wonderful quote from an environmental scientist named Gus Speth, who was the head of the National Resources Defense Council here in the U.S. And he was a scientist, an environmental scientist, and he said something to the effect of, you know i used to think that the major problems we were facing were climate change and species loss and this type of thing and i thought that 30 years of good science could fix that right and good legislation could fix that mm-hmm. and he said now i see that the problem is apathy and greed and and that needs a spiritual fix and right. he says we we scientists don't know how to do that and That's something that I think is very interesting because we can present, it's like, you know, and I said this in one episode, you can present all the facts you want to an addict, right? (laughs) You can say to an addict, like, you really need to stop using And the addict is caught in a somatic cycle. The addict is caught in a cycle that's physiological. The addict is caught. So, you know, what needs to happen is that deep fundamental longing needs to be addressed that we're talking about feeling. We need to start to address this stuff on the level of feeling.
0: Yeah, I think that's true.
1: And how we do that is really multifaceted, you know. And there's very simple ways within our communities, and how we build connection with the natural world among, you know, our children and our friends and this type of thing. Like there's ways to do it on that level. There's more macro initiatives that can start to get people who maybe are detached from, you know, their environments, like back into their environments to feel these types of things. I have I have great hope for what is being called the psychedelic Renaissance, Mm -hmm. and I think that that is really going to open up what you could call the feeling body of the nations in a, in a very um, powerful and impactful way because this type of empathy is what we need. Right. I think empathy is, is, is uh, yeah. Because I often struggle with this.
0: You can loop around in one's head trying to think yourself slash us out of this situation and you know, I alluded before to this kind of chicken versus egg broken record model. Is it inherently this emptiness and longing within us, or is it are we feeling empty and longing, longful because of the destruction we wrought? And da 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 da. And then the question, of course, in attempting to remedy, there are these external, society-wide, quote unquote, you know, sanctioned, organized initiatives and programs. Da, da da all of that. But I keep coming back to this question within myself of, I can't see how anything is going to change without, unless the human being, the collective or the planet or spirit or something has some kind of ace up its sleeve. I've struggled to see how the actual impulse and genuine shift of consciousness, spiritual growth, Without that, I don't see anything changing. I just see a repeat of the same old shit. Now, that's not to say I'm pessimistic. I'm just saying without that, I do not see a change occurring. And then I think to myself, well, then how does the individual or the collective actually manufacture that? Well, I don't know if we do, like people can make the effort to enact regular ritual, psychic hygiene, you know, meditate upon mortality and compassionate objectivity and connection to this or that or the other. Of course, we can actually enact practices that will flex those muscles and strengthen those connections. But you've said something before that actually put a light bulb off in my head. Um, I'm kind of thinking it through in real time now. I think the key to it may lie somewhere within actually sitting with and meeting that emptiness and that sense of grief that our culture seems very squirmish and queasy about going anywhere near like we seem to have seriously thick psychic membranes between approaching that. I think you're, you may be onto something we need to actually feel kinesthetically the reality of that, whatever is at the core of that sense of lack or not enoughness, whatever it comes down to abandonment, whatever it is actually sitting with it to motivate us toward remedying it. I think you're onto something with that. I think you're right on.
1: Yeah. And that has, you know, so many different levels to it. And and part of it is really understanding what it means to have a reciprocal relationship with the planet. And that means more than fencing off areas and saying that these areas are preserved. And um, it means feeling. It means, you know, exactly what you're talking about, which is you know, going into the, the deep spaces uh, of, of what this time and the challenges of this time actually make us feel. And yes, there's going to be a lot of grief associated with that. You know, that grief is also a portal and it's, um, it's a portal to a deeper relationship, you know, uh, you know, Martin Shaw talks about, he's a wonderful mythologist and storyteller, and Mm -hmm. he talks about, um, how the old gods aren't too impressed with like the shrill sound of complaining, but mm. that they listen when we go down to the seashore and shed a tear. They listen to that. Mm. And that's something, you know, there's there's a deep alchemy that needs to be rekindled and re-refound. And that alchemy doesn't always work. You know, I think that there are very obvious ways of dealing with some of the problems that we're facing. And again, I I'm all for those obvious ways but I think there's deeper alchemy that needs to be rekindled within the human heart. Mm -hmm. And I think it, it really like, you know, I think it revolves around a question that the poet Wendell Berry once asked, which is what are people for? (laughs) Like what are, what are we really here for? Yes, You know, what, what is this life about? What, like, what gives it value? What are we here for? And, you know, the the nature of the kind of machine that we're facing you could call it is that it doesn't want to dwell in that empty restless space it doesn't want to dwell in that womb of incubation it doesn't want to dwell in the darkness where it it fears of you know fears becoming devoured right it wants to even like within the world of those of us who want to help, like we immediately then want to turn everything into like, Oh my God, I got to do something. What am I going to do? I'm going to, you know, launch this and I'm going to do that. And I'm just as guilty of this as anyone else, right. Launching a podcast and all that. And, yeah. but you know, the, the mind immediately turns to like, okay, like, well, you know, I got to do something, got to get the word out there. How can I monetize this? How can I turn it into a second career? Like, you know, and hustle, you know, and we're all, we're all, we're all, and we're all in that you know, hustle to a certain degree and, that, and that's fine it's kind of a reality of the world we're living in but within that you know we need to find we need to find ritual for ritual's sake we need to find silence for silence's sake we need to find the womb of incubation for incubation's sake you know we need to find grief for grief's sake like all of these things you know w- there's not a there's not a prize waiting for us you know it, it's like it, you know it's it's about What am I here for? What am I doing? How am I walking this earth? Like, what do I, like, what do I, um, what do I feel? What do I feel when I breathe in and I breathe out? You know, what do I feel in the forest? If there is a
0: prize, it might be just being more fully oneself and alive and a uh, greater intimacy with everything around us. The inner alchemy, the need for some inner alchemy, I agree with. I look at healing I strongly suspect that like if we damage our body and cut ourselves, we don't need to organize that healing process. It occurs through the incredible intelligence of the physical body, which is the inheritor of countless generations of intelligence before it. I have a very strong suspicion that our mental, emotional, psychic, spiritual faculties and kind of, what's the word, anatomy is the same. The one thing that we don't do that is necessary in that process and where we get caught is actually just greeting it. Like in my experience, healing on an emotional level has a lot to do with just being able to be present with greeting and allowing and welcoming and being present with whatever is down in there in the first place. Now, once that occurs, I don't need to actively be the conscious architect of that process. It does it itself in my experience different degrees of thoroughness and completeness, but there, for the most part, there is great kind of remedial dynamic to that. The trick is actually getting there. It's the getting to that place because again, like, well, as individuals and certainly in the culture that I was raised in, I'm not sure what it's like where you were raised and your family seems to be a bit of an outlier. But in Australia, we have for a number of reasons, we have a interesting emotional dynamic, like we're famously laid back and we famously don't let a lot of things get to us or sweat the small stuff, which is great. But on the flip side, we don't, allow ourselves to really feel a lot of things and uh, there's this culturally informed fear of just getting to the core of things and that can be really tricky to get through and that to me is where the practice counts it's like when you jump into a cold bath one of the tricks is to go into the ice while maintaining a normal breath and not (gasps) go into that kind of like shock state to me, I feel it's very, very similar with, with these emotional states that our bodies and minds have trained ourselves to stay away from. So yeah, to me, it's just about actually being able to get to the core of these things or as close to them as possible. And once there, the uh, innate healing intelligence of our more than physical form takes over.
1: Yeah, it reminds me in the yogic teachings, the 12th yoga sutra from the Patanjali yoga sutras basically says that the the state of consciousness that we're seeking comes from showing up and doing the practice and allowing things to be exactly as they are, right? There's a, there's a balance what you're saying between this regular ritual repetition of getting there. Mm. And then once we're there of allowing that innate wisdom um, to do its thing. And and I think that that's an incredibly important balance and what that, you know, that balance speaks to, though, is the deep importance, especially in this day and age, um, in modern culture, of having a regular ritualized, repetitive practice of getting there. Because, you know, the within the framework of the ritual, within the rhythm of the ritual, within the heartbeat of the ritual, there's space to feel what we need to feel and for to shed what we need to shed, right? And to connect to what we need to connect with and for that healing to take place. And, you know, when it's something that we do over and 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 over again, I mean, that's the alchemy of it, right? It's that's the sacred fire that gets constructed that allows the things to burn away that we don't need and, you know, allows the things to grow that we need. What are we doing
0: if not breaking extremely old habits Yeah, that go beyond us? And that's just that's a matter of repetition, Building habit, and we're breaking like deep
1: personal, familial, cultural, species-wide habit. Yeah, absolutely, and that and that's that's the heart of it. It's not like we have that you know one experience of connectedness or that one experience of grief, and like okay, well that's it. Now I can move on with my life, right? The the thing, that the pilgrimage they say in one of the Indian texts is to be done countless number of times over and over and over again, because this is how also how we're biologically wired, you know, we need ritual repetition. This repetition, it's like the drumbeat, the heartbeat of our lives. Right. And it's through that repetitiveness that we start to forge new pathways and start to create, um, new ways of seeing and start to, to, um, shed and foster and grow and this type of thing right and this re- this applies on an individual level and obviously on a communal level and you know this is why it's so important to to find that community whatever it is you know to find that community that encourages us to do this type of thing
0: this type of work yeah indeed right. that's a really big one the community aspect of it such a lubrication to break down the old and rebuild the new and to remind oneself of the need to practice And I do wonder, like, we're obviously living in an age of transition now. In building these practices, in building these new languages and symbols of right relationship, to use the broadest sense, we borrow a lot from the past, which is fine. That's great. You know, a tool is a tool. If it works, it works. So inevitably, there's going to be a lot of borrowing From the past but i do wonder how different a space we are moving into jung writes that a mood of universal destruction and renewal has set its mark on our age this mood makes itself felt everywhere politically socially and philosophically we are living in what the greeks call the kairos the right moment for a metamorphosis of the gods of the fundamental principles and symbols this peculiarity of our time, which is certainly not of our conscious choosing, is the expression of the unconscious human within us who is changing. Coming generations will have to take account of this momentous transformation if humanity is not to destroy itself through the might of its own technology and science. So much is at stake and so much depends on the psychological constitution of the modern human. I do wonder as he writes, the right moment for a metamorphosis of the gods, of the fundamental principles and symbols. Do you get a sense for how dramatic a change is coming and or necessary in the next few years or generations? Or is it a rearranging of ever-existing patterns and symbols? For gods to change, for fundamental principles and symbols to change, that's a big deal do you have any concept of the gravity of change that is going to or needs to occur within our like sense-making
1: and symbol-making in the next few generations? Yeah. I mean, you know, that's a beautiful quote, by the way, and it's incredibly evocative and, um, and I think incredibly accurate. Mm. I think that, you know, I think that there's a, there's kind of a semantic thing on how you define gods. Right. And certainly there are, there are stru- there are structures around you know religious activity and this type of thing that certainly need to change and and are changing i think that you know right at the heart of everything is this basic fundamental human experience that we've been talking about right. which is the 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 longing for the human spirit to find home right the longing to feel this connection to longing to feel this rapturous connection to nature and to the cosmos and Mm. um, rigid structures, you know, religions tend to start with an individual or a few individuals who felt that um, phenomenal connection and then try to point the way to others to get there. And then these structures build around it. And then those structures tend to kind of calcify and get a little bit more like rigid and deeply embedded. Yeah. And so I certainly think dogmatic. dogmatic and I certainly think there is a whole lot of room for a deep renovation of those types of structures. And I think that that renovation is already happening. I mean, there's an interesting book that just came out called the immortality key, which talks about yeah, I read it. the um, how the foundation of a lot of West, Western religion is entheogenic and mm-hmm. that it started with an actual, experience of communion with plant medicine that caused people to actually feel connected. Right. Yeah. And now over the past, like thousand years ago or, th- or so we've lost that and, and what we were left with is kind of an empty shell. Right. Yeah. So I think, and this is kind of a long way of getting at your question, but, but what I think is that, um, I think we're going to see a proliferation of m- meaning making and sense making and and we already are i think like you know jamie will talks about like the meaning crisis and this type of thing uh, and a lot of people talk about it and i think within that you're going to see the arising of um, practices and traditions. And I think you're going to see new variations on old themes. And I think you're going to see some stuff that's probably fairly weird and probably, um, somewhat scary, even some of it, I think you're going to see mm. more cults than we've seen before mm. all of the end. I think you're going to see also that in a positive direction. I think you're going to see more communities like yeah. binding together around shared values. When you live in a world where deep fake video is possible and nobody even really knows what's true anymore from an objective Mm -hmm. sense, you're going to, you're going to find people uh, coalescing into communities of, of shared truth and shared value. And that can be really frightening on one hand, and it can also be really beautiful depending on what that shared value is. Right. Right. So I think, I think you're going to see all of that. And I guess what I am encouraging within this kind of carnival (laughs) is that, you know, there's just there's a place where the kind of sense making movement gets so cerebral and it's like a a, a battle of the intellects, and there, there's like mm-hmm. everyone's got to invent a new terminology to talk about this or to talk about that. You know, none of that stuff ultimately matters or gets us anywhere. I mean, and, and that, you know, that's not a, that's an exaggeration, right? It's good to have thinkers out there and this type of thing. Mm-hmm. But what I think what I think that um you know, is, is being hinted at in that quote mm. is that, you know, again, this alchemy that needs to happen and alchemy is a somatic process and we need to create spaces in which, you know, like we can, you could say, feel the old gods again and feel the primal forces of nature and the, the forces that govern our lives and the forces that are present in our communities and conversations. And by forces, I don't mean anything like abstract or strange. I simply mean, you know, deep understanding of the way that things unfold, how things up. How um, natural systems evolve and interlink, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a deep understanding and feeling for this world we occupy and the actual results of our actions and how our actions actually play out within actual communal dynamics so that we can move from like what is fundamentally like an internet talk fest you know, where it's just like a constant, constant stream of like chatter and you have to approach it this way and you have to approach it that way. No, we have to approach it this way. And none of that is actually based in like an actual material communal structure within nature that follows or obeys any of the actual laws of the natural world. And what I'm interested in is seeing how we can create structures that, that are in alignment with and harmony with and flow within the natural structure. So, and that means communication dynamics. That means, you know, the designs of communities. That means the designs of cities. It means like actually starting to return to a way of seeing the world that um, flows within the harmony of natural systems Mm. as opposed to just being an abstract overlay one of the, I'll just say this. One of the things I talk about in my podcast is that philosophies originally grew from nature. We observed nature and then we formed philosophies. Now we're in an age where the, we create abstract philosophies and then we try to apply them to the material world. And the abstract philosophy comes before its application. And that doesn't work so well right our nature ultimately is going to determine all of this (laughs) nature like Mm -hmm. you know no matter how how you know far we get like from earth to mars is nothing within the cosmic scale right Mm -hmm. like a a million years of human beings is nothing within the cosmic scale everything that humans achieve however technologically brilliant we're 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 bound to get, you know, however many like microseconds we expand the human lifespan and everything like that, nature is going to determine all of it. Like it's all going to be determined within the laws of nature. So, you know, understanding that and starting to understand and shift our perspective so that we are you know, in alignment with these deep wave dynamics of nature, these long-term dynamics of nature, like that, that's, that's ultimately the only philosophy <laughs> that actually matters. Yeah. Right. We, uh, any human being can, think of a thing and then try and kind of impose it on the material world right and human beings have done that and mm. you know in certain cases millions of people have died when human beings have done that. i'm going to come up with an ideology and then impose it yeah right true philosophy true ideology this type of thing has to come from our experience of and observance of and our interaction with the natural world mm-hmm. right and it has to come from that place where we feel like what right relationship with the world is so yeah sorry that's a very long-winded answer um but i hope it uh, approaches the question no <laughs>
0: please i asked a long-winded question and that mirrors very very closely how i feel it's easy When one uses the word nature to think of the more immediate and perceivable aspects of a natural system, a woodland, a prairie, whatever it may be, but there are these deeper underlying patterns and impulses, cycles and dynamics to nature from which the more immediately observable aspects emerge from. And it's those currents and proclivities and cycles that I agree we need to base our culture upon in order to have any chance. <laughs> and, you know, a culture couched upon an alignment with those natural patterns. To me, there's no, there's no loftier or worthwhile goal to become aware of those patterns. And in some respects, one could argue that some culture's definition of the gods is those patterns. Oh, absolutely. Certain aspects of those patterns and impulses. And, I mean, who was it Who was it that actually said that the death of or the disposing of those gods created the unconscious, the human unconscious? It was our turning away from them, whether out of arrogance or just ignorance or an actual blindness that was caused by something else who knows but it our rejection from or refusal or inability to acknowledge those patterns that are going to work upon us from the outside material or come up through us like birth flowing flowering from within us we are unaware of them then we're fucked because they're going to play out through us in ways that could be far less comfortable and more destructive and crazy making than they may need to be.
1: Yeah, and 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 what you're saying, you know, there's a very simple way to illustrate it, which is simply that the the particular waveform that is supposed to be how modern human societies are supposed to progress, the ever increasing arc of GDP, right. Right. Is, is not, is not a waveform that exists within nature. No. You know, everything within nature has its ebb and its flow. A, a wave reaches the point where um, its foundation can no longer support, um, you know, its forward movement and, and the, the mass on top and it collapses. Right. Mm-hmm. And, you know all the charts that we see right now, with everything going up, 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 up. Mm-hmm. There's there's only there's only one possible correction to that, and that correction is that the wave comes down. Right. Now, what that means for humanity, you know, it doesn't have to be like all bleak. It's just an understanding that we can't build progress models or visions of human society. We can't build it on an ever expanding, ever increasing waveform, always forward, always up, always forward, always up. That's not how the universe works. There's no waveform within this vibrational matrix of creation that works in that way, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, our planning, our fundamental planning of systems has to recognize that at the very least. You know, when you have some of the most like lauded thinkers in the world, like people like Steven Pinker, like basically saying like, all we have to do is like trust GDP and you know, everything's going to work out fine. And in fact, things are never better than they've been before. It's just like, you know, this is missing a fundamental basic understanding of how the natural world works. I see that all the time. This question that's
0: asked kind of implicitly or explicitly in different ways, in different words, what do we have to do? What do we have to invent? whether it's like some machine or new political system for us to continue to live the way we've been living. Yeah. It's like that. that's the question that gets asked. It's like, no, 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 no. It's not how it works guys. There is nothing we could build or create to continue living the way we're living. And do we want to continue living the way we're living? Yeah. I I
1: mean, absolutely. You, You know, and the latest plan, like to, um, blast like chalky powdery substances into the atmosphere so it blocks the sun rays and that'll cool down the planet and that kind of thing and oh the side effect might be that the sky turns white instead of blue and it's like you're really seriously talking about this with a straight face you know (laughs) that's fucking mental man like like, what could possibly go wrong yeah what could possibly go wrong let's just block out the sun's rays Worked for the dinosaurs right (laughs) you know and and yeah and that's that's the place where you know Um, science also has to get out of the realm of abstraction and into the realm of, of reality, right? Science is often driven by market forces. Science is um, driven often by people who are kind of detached from these fundamental, you know, understandings of, 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 reality as well and you know this is where this is where things get really simple the absurdity of it it gets taken in a
0: direction that is so obviously cartoonishly ridiculous and terrifying that whoever sees it who has some lingering thread of sanity left in them goes that ain't right this trajectory is not right we're just going to block out the sun Mm. like some bond villain (laughs) (laughs) like it's so absurd that in and of itself can be a trigger for like a little aha
1: moment a little wake-up moment and i think that's happening more and more you know yeah you know i i i am concerned about where people turn um but i think like i said before i think we're going to see a variety of of places that people are turning to and i think a whole lot of them are going to be incredibly positive you know, and, um, and just the fact that conversations like this are happening more and more, you know, when I started the podcast, even two years ago, I felt like, okay, there's a handful of people talking about this stuff. And now it seems even in that two years, it's grown exponentially. And I feel that these, these are the types of conversations that need to happen. And this type of, you know, vision of, what it really means to construct a repetitive ritualized harmonic relationship with the natural world. You know, I think these types of conversations are happening in communities all over the world. And I think that people are actually like working to, to take that knowledge and, um, actually bring it to life within their communities. And that gives me a lot of hope.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I see a lot of it, mate. I've been heavily involved with the regenerative agriculture and permaculture communities for years, on top of the systems thinking and wider revisionist discussion. And as bleak as it is, in many ways, the flowering of of incredible human ingenuity at the moment is remarkable and it obviously doesn't make the mainstream media but it's out there there are people doing incredible things right now and lots Mm, of them yeah Yeah, in terms of these discussions mate I'm very grateful that you took the time to have one with me I won't hold you too much longer is there anywhere in particular folks can go to get hold of your work there's the Emerald podcast is there anywhere
1: else do you have a, a website Similar. The podcast is the best way to um, keep track of what I'm doing. And then there's a Patreon page associated with the podcast. It's patreon.com slash the Emerald podcast. And I have a study group that I run twice a month. Um I offer courses and this type of thing and you can find out about it through the through the Patreon site. Oh, cool. I wasn't aware of that. I'll check that out. Yeah, it's a we do a twice monthly study group. It's like two, two and a half hours each time. And uh we look at topics that we're exploring on the podcast and have discussions around it. We have a really good community of people doing that. And the Patreon, I mean it costs as little as about like six bucks a month. So for for that you get like a real um you know chance to connect and discuss and and talk about these types of topics a lot. (laughs) Awesome. I'll definitely check that out myself. Anything you'd like to leave the listeners with before we uh sign off? We touched on some beautiful topics and touched on some heavy topics and I'm simply grateful to be able to have the opportunity to talk about these types of meaningful topics and I hope that they can help spark that alchemy that we've been speaking of that we can spark together the alchemy of the heart and people can find a connection in their lives to imagination vision and wonder
0: lovely well said all right mate thanks very much for joining us i really appreciate it and for those who haven't already i strongly urge you to check out josh's podcast the emerald it's super high quality production very evocative and one of the best things on the internet at the moment in my humble opinion
1: wow thank you (laughs) the internet's big (laughs) yeah there's a lot of shit on there thanks man all right buddy cheers see you later thanks take care